Welcome to Arcanac Sessions, episode 29. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we share a conversation with Thomas Heatherwick. Amelia and I sat down with him a little over a week ago before he took the stage to an overflowing crowd at the Billy Wilder Theater in the Hammer Museum, home to his current exhibition, Provocations. How's everybody's week so far? So far, so good. Yeah. Good. Everybody ready for the uh, convention? Totally ready. I'm here already. I'm in Atlanta already. I know. You're ahead of us. You know, you walk into the airport and there's a banner saying, welcome AIA. And everywhere I look, every person I see, I'm like, oh, I think that's an architect. Oh, yeah, that's an architect. <laughs> I just hopped in the elevator in the hotel and saw a guy and said, you're here for the AIA, right? And he's like, yep, I am. You can tell. You can just tell. So the city is going to be crazy with architects. So how can you tell? Is it? You can just tell. I don't know. I don't know. Define that look of an architect that gives them away. Considered clothing, but not super fancy. Okay. A little bit of weariness around the eyes. Uh-huh. And uh, sort of, a, I feel like architects look at the built world and we actually look at it. We look at the things that surround us. Look up. We look up. A lot of people looking up. A lot of people looking up. Yes. And there's a lot to look up at here in Atlanta, too. So banners and uh, tall buildings and lights in the sky. I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be really fun. So, yeah, you guys get here later today, right? Ken and yes. everyone? Yes. Be there by the end of today. Very yeah. exciting. What time are you guys landing? We are arriving at the airport at around 10 o'clock tonight. Okay. Oh, late. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's still like seven o'clock our time. So We'll meet you in the pool with a peach-themed cocktail of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> I've already had the peach-themed bourbon cocktail, so I'm hitting hard here. Peach and bourbon. Wow, you found the, the sweet spot for you. It's yeah. quite nice. So I'll just talk quickly about my last week. I went to Syracuse to do the Super Jury. The Super Jury is the thesis review at Syracuse, and it is a condensed list of selected students who present to, there were about a dozen visiting jurors plus the faculty at Syracuse. Syracuse. And um, I reviewed six projects and then I had brief interactions with three other students looking at their projects. And um, I have to say, I was blown away by the work. Every bit of work I saw was amazing. And certainly this was the creme de la creme of the graduating students, but all of the work was just so deeply considered, really well-researched, beautifully presented, and a really wide range of topics. So we had one guy making jigs, he was trying to make like half full scale jigs for creating glue laminated timbers. And then there was one woman critiquing how beef is produced. And there was one brave, brave young man named Hassan who took on REM's elements and decided that REM left out atrium and he should add the atrium. So it was a total critique of REM and just really wide ranging. Some buildings, some just pure research, just a fantastic experience. So impressed with Syracuse's thesis program. Nice. So, so was this the graduate program? It was graduate and undergraduate. Most of the student work I saw was undergraduate. And I have to say it was just fantastic. It was all graduate level work as far as I was concerned. So did you take any photos? I Twittered the whole thing with photos. And then Fred Sharman very intelligently put up a quick Twitter that said, hey, professors, when you're tweeting pictures of student work around graduation time, make sure you credit them. And I realized I hadn't credited a single student and I felt terrible about it. So, But I did do a lot of Twittering during the event. Nice. Cool. Well, maybe we can uh, embed some of your tweets in our show notes. Yeah. I actually started to take a picture of one of the things and the professor grabbed me and said, no, 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 I need to publish that. Don't put it up yet. So, <laughs> so <laughs> it was a really good image, but uh, you'll see it eventually. And who else was on the super jury? Oh, I'm so bad at names. Um, Alvin Huang was there, who we've had on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. From the Acadia Conference. A local Angelino. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Wendy Falk from, mm -hmm. 
I can't remember where she's from. Michigan? Yes. Yes, I think she is. I think she is. Patrick Ahern, who's a uh, uh, an alum of Syracuse and will be here at the AIA convention also. There, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't write down all the names, but lots of really good people. And um, it was a great event. Super fun. Super jury. Super fun. Were you given a Michael Speaks t-shirt? I was given a super jury t-shirt, which is lovely and a very cool design. But I said, you know, I really wanted this picture. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd have to enroll as a Syracuse freshman. That's the only way you can get it. I think so. I think She's so. going to do it now. <laughs> no, <laughs> Never hurts to have another degree. Well, and Syracuse is also just, the campus is beautiful. The site of the campus is gorgeous. You're looking across the Finger Lakes valleys. You know, it's really lovely. I was there in the dead of winter. So it was probably a different experience than you had. I think so. It was the height of lovely spring while I was there. Nice. So, Ken, what have you been up to? We, we've all been traveling, but you've been just nose to the grindstone, right? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, covering two full-time jobs and um, tending to work around the house and getting ready for this trip. And other than that, you know, not much else going on, really. Well, it'll be very exciting for us all to meet in Atlanta because I have not met either Donna or Ken. Neither all, have I. Yeah, and obviously we know you guys from on Arconnect. We know your Arconnect selves, but it'll be fantastic to finally meet in person. I was thinking like, since we know each other through the podcast, the way that we'll find each other is just all stand in the lobby of a hotel and speak out loud so that, because we recognize each other's voices. Absolutely. No, I had one of the guys on the, on the jury. In fact, it was Alvin on the jury. When I was commenting on a student's work afterwards, he came up to me and said, you know, I was listening to your voice and thought I was in my office with my headphones on because that's where I hear your voice all the time. So yeah, people are recognizing our voices for sure. And uh, yeah, we'll just stand around and speak. Oh, I know what all you guys look like. Mm. Yeah. You know, there's this thing called Google. In this world of social media, I know. Yeah. You can look up people. Yeah, but you only know us from the shoulders up. (laughs) Oh, good point. Good point. Well, I have a a wig that I wear to conferences to retain some type of anonymity (laughs) because especially, you know, as a member of press, you don't want to get hounded too much. So it's completely different from your internet wig. That's very true. (laughs) Especially at an architecture (laughs) conference. I have a wig for every social media platform that I'm present on. (laughs) Oh, you are crafty. You are crafty, Amelia. I'm going to have to struggle to keep up with you. What have you been doing? prepping for this trip. I've solidified a pantsuit option and I'm happy to say that I will be able to <laughs> to go through with it come later tonight and tomorrow and, and uh, Friday. So I'm looking forward to that. And other than that, we've just been kind of, we've been rolling around in different interviews and stuff. We do have a lot of really exciting stuff planned for future podcast episodes that we just can't talk about quite yet. But um, Yeah, been, we have a lot. Yeah, we've, we've kind of got our backpacks full at the moment, but um, it's really exciting. So we've been doing a lot of that at the office and I'm just looking forward to going to Atlanta and, and meeting a bunch of architects all at once. It's going to be, it's going to be wonderfully overwhelming. The, just Donna, you say you can just identify them just by their look. I'm sure there's a smell. There's yes, got to be a smell. Th- there is a smell. <laughs> <laughs> Ken agrees is with there? me. What is that smell? It's the smell of desperation. Desperation. <laughs> <laughs> desperation and uh, lack of sleep. Desperation, perspiration, and... Determination. That one too. You smell that also. <laughs> Paul, we should manufacture an Arconnect scent. A cologne there you go. or a perfume. <laughs> well, I, Based uh, on these adjectives that we're throwing out. I have a scent. I mean, I wear a scent religiously every single day. So I definitely have that smell and people do recognize it. But I think the coffee and bourbon is also a big part of it. I do. Mm. We all get that nasty coffee breath, unfortunately. But I have said before, the, the best dressers at the conference will not be the architects. They'll be the product reps because product mm. reps really dress 
They know how to present themselves. They have to. So And the interior designers, I'm sure. They dress better than us too, yes. Generally. <laughs> I mean, we're really generalizing right now. Some of the best dressers I've ever met have been architects. So I am bringing the prototypical architecture wardrobe. That's how we'll spot you. We'll just, <laughs> he'll completely blend into the prototypical crowd. Oh, yeah. He'll be the one that looks like he's from Sprockets. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, that's an old joke for some people. With the limp. Amelia doesn't get that one. I don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're, we're old. Well, speaking of fashion, actually, so when we spoke, Paul mentioned earlier in the intro that we spoke with Thomas Heatherwick uh, a week or so back when he was in Los Angeles to give a speech at his provocations exhibition. And that guy also had a, he was dressed very snappily. I really liked his, he had this like kind of heathered vest plus these cool patterned pants combo. And he gave a great presentation. I've never seen someone at a either architecture lecture or art and design lecture at a museum have the crowd so much in his control or in their control that he could say anything and they would stormed the Coliseum. They would have voted for his political party. They would have, they were putty in his hands. He gave a really great presentation going through kind of the background of his work, as well as some really nitty gritty, just design decisions along the way of a lot of the projects he's known for, like the the London double-decker bus and the Olympic cauldron for London 2012. So he gave a really great presentation and Paul and I were lucky enough to chat with him for a little bit right before he went on to get some personal insight from him. Yeah, the lecture was amazing. It was really one of the best presentations by an architect I've ever seen. I was already familiar with his work, but hearing him talk about the process and and the work behind the end product really made me respect it a lot more. And I I have to say, if he never became a designer, he definitely could have been a stand-up comedian. <laughs> really? He was hilarious. And it was really surprising because we spoke with him right before, which we're about to listen to in, in a minute. And, you know, he's very humble and quiet. And he, he strikes you as someone who's just kind of shy and extremely thoughtful. But then he, when he gets on stage, he's just the most energetic. I don't know. It was a really great, great talk. And it was surprisingly Good. There are points at which he would walk across the stage in a kind of pantomiming to try to emphasize whatever point he was making. Yes. And it, it, it resembled like some, I mean, I don't want to typecast him in any type of British box, but there were certain British comedy routines that I immediately recall watching him do that. And it was, he just, he put his whole body into it in a really Extremely charming British. way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Visions of Mr. Bean occasionally <laughs> popped into my head, but it was, yeah, it was great. So should we cut to our talk with him now? Yeah. All right. Let's listen. So exhibition looks looks great, by the way. I noticed in this show, your projects are all presented as a solution to a design problem. And they're presented specifically with a question. I was wondering if you asked yourself a question when you were tasked with putting together this body of work. My whole life is asking myself questions. And I think it was a, it's a doubting Thomas, I think, that exists as a phrase. Um, I mean, I think that the root of all things, most projects and whether they're written or carved or painted is of people curious about things and wondering. And the work of my studio is definitely driven by trying to figure out what's the right thing to do and what actually the parameters are that matter driven from human experience, I suppose, first. And then you almost refine your questions down and then it sort of gets to the point where the question tells you its answer. If you can find the right question, I've found. And that's not trying to sound clever. I've just found that that thrashing around for identifying the, the real issue. And I suppose I'm interested in problem solving and I see what we do as that. And the UK Pavilion, for example, 
on the face of it sounds like a comedy project, the world's biggest ever hairy building, but I can justify every single tiniest move on that project from a problem solving objective, whether that's to do with the budgets or the British government's objectives and the context and the way it was going to be used and including why there isn't Sherlock Holmes and why instead there's a quarter of a million seeds and why that extreme texture rather than maybe a slightly more conventional surface making. I also want to touch on a little bit your presence in the US versus your presence in the United Kingdom. I think that part of the show has really brought your name to a larger American audience that might have previously known you and that this exhibition in particular has kind of showed the breadth of your work to people who otherwise might have known you for one particular work or another. I wanted to know if you could touch a little bit on the idea of coming here to Los Angeles and speaking in the midst of this exhibition. How do you feel your coming to Los Angeles and coming to the U.S.? How do you feel your presence is being received here versus in the United Kingdom or in London in particular? Well, I've found it to be quite a special time in America now where there could be a risk of Europe having a slight complacency over its cultural heritage. And that sort of idiosyncrasy that's been there for a very long time has meant that there's been a certain kind of creative output from people and intensity that cities like London have had. And the lovely thing in the last few years where my studio has had the chance to work on this side of the Atlantic was finding this phenomenal different kind of creativity and that creativity being in the vision of what could really happen rather than a sort of navel gazing creativity that can sometimes happen in Europe. And that belief that there are no limits is absolutely thrilling and very provoking for, for someone like me. And so it feels like the potential for collaboration in that and the, the three different projects we're working on at the moment in the States, all of them are things that are types of projects. I've always been interested in types of projects rather than so much what I'm going to do or my team or someone else is doing, but whether there is the, the a real solid base pushing for something within the brief itself. And the, I mean, the, the new pier in New York that we're working on, it's an absolutely extraordinary brief. The other project we're working on at Hudson Yards, it's which I'm not allowed to talk so much about, but is absolutely extraordinary time where there's the confidence to think about public things. And there's been huge emphasis on private excellence and innovation, but that's never interested me at all. And, and in America, I know there've been lots of people have incredible private homes, but I'm just not interested in people's private homes because that's the bit you know can be special. But the part that gets neglected everywhere, UK included, is often the bit that we all share in between, whether that's the hospitals or schools or care homes or public spaces. And so there's newfound confidence and chance and some amazing people who believe you can, who have the, the lack of hard-boiled cynicism. And there can be a sort of smug cynicism in the UK I've, I've really experienced. And so I'm loving trying to respond to that optimism that where you have to believe the best of other people to do the really good work. In terms of your work in London, I want to expand on that a little bit more, that you've worked on these incredible projects for the City of London and in the City of London. I was wondering how you think of your work and your firm as an extension of a kind of local driven or locally driven or locally inspired kind of work. And then also being able to bring that perspective to a place very, like that is very different, such as New York or when working in that different kind of heritage between the private and public. Mm. 
I mean, I've always been someone who's quite self-aware and self, self-conscious, and I've been wary to have your main idea just jump from project to place to city to continent and almost your language be more recognisable than the place. It felt to me there's, it's almost rude if you can already recognise who some something is by somehow. And so I'm not trained in a conventional building design way. Very deliberately, I avoided that, the education system available to me in the 1980s and went a different path because I had grown up interested in ideas. And it seemed that ideas were the root of whether it was science or uh, sculpture or theatre or architecture. It was the ideas were at that root. And I'd not really heard of these separate different sliced up bits. And it seemed that invention was the key that we responded to as humans. And I wanted to be an inventor when I was young. And then it seemed the inventive part was what we responded to often within art or within theatre or within writing. And so in a way, with my team, we try to look at each place and try to invent a project particular to that place and resist as much as we can, duplicating, sort of plagiarising ourselves. And, and it feels that's the most sort of polite thing you can do for a play. And if a project is famous, that's what you're aspiring to. to it meaning, if a project means something to people and then has its own life, then that, that's great. But trying to not sort of make things be a version of the previous thing that you did. So I like that pressure that we put on ourselves, but it just means there's no shorthand. You know, there's, there's, um, we've developed systems to hunt down what answers might be, but there's no shorthand for, oh, this is how we do this, or this is how we do that. Because if that's how we did it, then we would like to look at how we might not do it that way, because you become your own cliche. And I suppose I've always been very interested in what is cliche and some stubborn streak built in. I've got a very stubborn collection of relatives around me and I'm very interested in reality. And I trained and grew up at a time when there were books full of amazing visions of what the future could be. And the future was never embracing those ideas. And it seemed that the world of people conceiving of these ideas was very detached and blamed the rest of the world if those ideas didn't happen. And I suppose I tried to invent an organisation over the last two decades to specifically engage with how do you actually make things happen and use most of the time in my studio's work, we're trying to use any ingenuity we have to bring about change, bring about public projects. And so most of the time you're not sort of there saying, oh, it could be this shape. or it could be. You're thinking, well, how do you respond to that limitation, whether that's budgetary or a regulatory issue or what you just, the dynamics of all the different bodies and people and characters and trying to use every weird thing that threatens to ruin a project and flip it somehow to be something that adds richness and detail and particularity. That fits perfectly into the idea of conceiving of each project as a problem to be solved. It's asking a question instead of seeing the practice as a franchised corporation that goes around and produces a certain content or product that people can recognize and people can put a monetary kind of value to. And that's something that we also want to talk to you about is how you practice and how your firm kind of approaches these problems that seems, even though you're now at around 150 people, that become a large and very active firm, but has kind of decided not to take that approach to setting up different satellites all over and kind of churning out that same process or product, but that there's still a very like iterative and curated approach. So I was wondering if you could just maybe explain a little bit, if as long as you can, about how your 
firm functions in that regard and just how you run the office and the type of culture that is encouraged there? Well, earlier I was speaking about how you make things happen. And when I set up my studio, the only way to make the first projects we did happen for many years was to build them yourself. Otherwise, there was just no way something could happen. And so I made them myself and and me and my team and you'd beg and borrow and everyone was doing you favours all the time. And so the studio sort of legacy from that really is that we have a, a substantial workshop with welding and plastic working and laser cutting and milling machines and, and lots of hand tools and axes and things like that to be able to overcome making issues and if necessary make a full-size bit of a front of a bus to show why the issue that was threatening to ruin the whole bus needn't or or, and so the workshop really is like the heart and it just feels the most important bit but the around that and we now have some amazing makers to we don't make our projects anymore but we make the tools to help others to make them or understand them or communicate or do test pieces and things like that. Then the studio is organized. There's actually 170 people now. And the studio really is, we are a body of projects. What's exciting is finding what you can really do. And, And I've been lucky to build up around me some really, really clever people who are able to stand back from themselves and a group of people who are, who are excited to try and see what's possible. And and we are organized in collections of project teams with project leaders. And I work on every project with all the project leaders, but the project leaders are brilliant at knowing when to pull me in or when to push me away. And there's a, we have a a little design group who, who work across all the projects, making sure knowledge and things that we're learning, we're making sure that we're not missing things that we can spot or glean from other experiences we're having. And so for me, that's the thrilling thing, but it's like, an, in a sense, I mean, we're working on some extremely large master plan projects and it's an experiment. I mean, the studio is is the biggest project of, of all the things. How can you grow the maximum capacity to do the most special projects that you possibly can? And in a second, if I feel we're not doing that, I'll, I'll close the studio in an instant. But when there's no urge to try to be a business, I was in denial that we even were one for the first 10 years of the studio's life. So it's trying to make a special place, and that's a bland sounding word, but you're trying to make, optimize everything for everyone that we collaborate with whether that's a consultant who comes in and works with us and to make our projects, which are probably going to be the hardest projects that they work on. It means the quality of smoothies and biscuits and all things like that matter a lot because it needs to be an environment that people will really enjoy being in because we're probably taking the longer journey, the longer voyage to have outcomes that are special enough to have made that all worth it. Thank you so much. We really enjoy watching you on this journey and all the things that are coming out of it. So we really appreciate the time for you and your short visit to Los Angeles coming and talking with us. Thank you. All right. So for those of you listening to this, the exhibition is still on until May 24th. So it's almost over. Really recommend checking it out. I had the privilege of visiting Heatherwick Studio in London last week, and that was a real treat. For those of you that saw the exhibition and were impressed with the way that the work was presented, you'd be amazed at how his studio, which he described to us and in the lecture as his most important project he's ever undertaken. And 
plans on ever undertaking in the future. Just the design of of the space, the uh, curation of the people, the way that everybody comes together and works together and collaborates. It's an extremely creative space. A friend of his donated his really impressive collection of like curiosities to his office space, which are just presented beautifully across the space, which just inspire. You know, you look around and, and you see these strange museum-like pieces, you know, and wonder where these pieces came from and what they did. And one thing I was really impressed with, you know, meeting the architects there at the studio is just the focus that, that the practice has on inspiration from everything. I took a lot of photos of the space, which I will be sharing in the show notes. So check those out. There were many parts of the studio that I could not photograph because I got some peeks at some upcoming projects that are very secretive and extremely beautiful that we're excited to share when we're able to. But yeah, take a look at those photos and get inspired. And from our time, our limited time, unfortunately, to speak with him, we were under explicit directions not to talk about the Google project for many reasons, obviously. But what really did come through in the, even the general's conversation we had was this, as Paul mentioned, this kind of diverse approach and kind of any, anything goes kind of style of inspiration of that they're open to really taking things from anywhere. And I think that because Thomas is not an architect and doesn't identify as one and never got schooling in explicitly architecture, but instead I believe his degree is in three-dimensional design or something like that. So that there's this kind of lack of a presumption about what style his work should be pursuing or what style his business should be run in based on, oh, it has to run with an architectural model or, oh, it has to run with a design studio model, that there's this more liberal approach to what might be useful and how to use it in any different context, whether it's designing a piece of public transit or a handbag or a staircase or an entire tech campus, <laughs> you know, like this, the scale goes in every which direction. So I found that really fascinating. Speaking of the uh, Google collaboration with Big, which for some reason they referred to Big as B-I-G, which I haven't heard from anybody outside of Heatherwick's office, but everybody at Heatherwick calls them B-I-G. So maybe they're changing the Or they're the less familiar they with Notorious B-I-G and they just don't feel like that, that <laughs> overlaps. <laughs> yeah. But uh, one thing that was really interesting is they were telling me about how they work together. And it sounds like a really amazing collaboration that they have. It's a very horizontal kind of peer-based model where representatives from Heatherwick Studio and Big team up at similar levels, like junior designers will be teamed up with junior designers at, at each firm and, you know, senior designers, product designers, um, graphic designers. And it's a, it, rather than it being a top-down kind of executive-led process, it's really more peer-based, which apparently has been working out very nicely and very efficiently. I was really struck by this optimism and Paul, you talk about it, this this sort of willingness to look in any direction to find influence. And it just seemed to me there's this great optimism in the studio's work. And I was really struck by him talking about how coming and working in the U.S., I assume for Google, although he's done some other things too, that he feels like the U.S. has no fear and that there are no limits, he said, to creativity, that there's this sense that anything really can be done or accomplished. It just set me to wondering if it's only non-U.S. citizens who come here and sense that, because I feel like what I get from the design community in our country is very much, we're constrained by capital, we're constrained by rules, we're constrained by liabilities. So, uh, you know, it just made me think more about the need to go to other places to be able to see them with eyes that are not jaded. And I love that he feels like he can find that kind of creative of optimism in the U.S. and do work over here. And maybe this is a positive outcome of globalism. 
you know? I would totally agree with that with one caveat that his clients in the US are certainly not really lacking of any resources. So if he's working for Google or if he's working for a peer in, in New York, it's kind of like, right, right. it's not your average job. Um, yeah. So yeah. his perspective might be a little unique <laughs> in that sense. I mean, for, for the average uh, American or North American, I think the way that we see it often is that, you know, why aren't we building as many amazing buildings as what we're seeing getting built in Asia and Europe? It seems like there's a lot more interesting stuff going on over there. So it's it's an interesting way that these different geographies are being perceived from different citizens of the world. And the legacy for the Google project being kind of now under new consideration after it was announced that Google didn't get all the land that they requested from Mountain View. They got only a quarter of it, that the most of the lion's share of the land went to LinkedIn that was also trying to bid for the land. And so I'm assuming that Google is going to retain some type of relationship with with Big and Heatherwick. However, their design for four times as much land as they now have is not going to stay as it is. So it's kind of like they have to do some style. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to see how that develops because that's a pretty drastic blow to deal to such an ambitious project. LinkedIn must have had better testimonials. I think someone on the forum said referred to LinkedIn just made a more boring proposal. So Mountain View was like, we're cool with it. LinkedIn boring? <laughs> I, I, I know. I, I would never put those two words together in a sentence. But I think that they kind of, there was some claim made about like, it's more consistent with the office park style and that they might have, there was also some um, mention of LinkedIn making more amenities available for public housing and things in the area that are, you know, probably touch very touchy subjects for anyone trying to develop in the area. You know, what was interesting was when, Paul, your first question, when you asked him about questions and, and how they look at their work. And then I thought you were, the point you were getting at, which I don't think he was picking up on, was what were the questions that were in putting together an exhibition where they become so kind of machine-like and always typically look the same. What I don't get a sense of is what were the questions that he was asking as they were putting this exhibition together in Los Angeles? So I like the idea that, you know, he's always on every project, every project is different because all the questions are different. And then the questions, the answers evolve from the questions and they kind of seem apparent once you start asking the right questions that the solutions kind of resolve themselves. Um, so I was kind of hoping he would talk more about that, um, how that was curated and, and, and what were the questions and concerns about doing something like that? Yeah, I, I think he misinterpreted my first question. I, I think I may have not been very clear in the way I asked it, but his answer was pretty great anyways, even if it wasn't addressing my specific question. But yeah, no, I'm glad that you picked up on that at least. At least I wasn't making complete nonsense. No, it was good. Also in the presentation he made at the Hammer, he, I think for almost every project that he was discussing, he made some explanation or allusion to the budget. He would just say very straight up like, well, we had this material, but it was really expensive. So we went with this one or we were working under these budgets. So we had to scale it back or we knew that that would be an issue. And so we couldn't get and we could get the money for it. So we figured it out. So that was, I found very refreshing and something, Donna, I definitely don't think would have been so forthcoming um, from an American architect or in an American context of just really being, you know what, this design decision, yeah, it looks great. And yeah, we could give you a very specific, like a intellectualized reason as to why it's that way. Or we could also just tell you that it's what exactly we could do in the moment with the money that we had. And it doesn't make it less impressive. In fact, it kind of makes it more impressive. And he talked about that he wants his projects 
to be optimized for every participant. So for him, for the client, for the users, for the builders, I assume, you know, for everyone who participates in the project, he wants it to be a win-win for everyone. And I think that also is very, in many ways, not the traditional United States, North American attitude towards construction, where it's always client, owner, contractor, you know, in fighting with one another. He just seemed to approach everything with there can be a lot of constraints. And within those constraints, we will figure out what the right questions to ask are, and we will make it so it's good answers to all of those questions and everyone wins. It was just very, very optimistic attitude. You know, the one thing I, I think it shouldn't go unnoted is we've been kind of hard on Kareem Rashid. This idea about a designer, and, and, and right I, in my mind, rightly so, because I think what Thomas Heatherwick has presented is a way of approaching the profession in a very thoughtful way and in a very, maybe it's the, the work reflects the, or the person is embodied in the work or the work is embodied, you know, some, somehow as a reflection of the individual. So his work is really kind of, it's very different, but he's very kind of restrained. And he said in the interview, you know, he's self-aware and he's conscious of all these kind of externalities where I think when you look at, and he's not an architect. And so how do we balance accepting this guy as a really quality designer? And we, I go on shit on Rashid. And, you know, I think part of it is that there's this kind of unrefined kind of bombastic assholishness that Rashid comes across with and his work is reflective of that kind of attitude and it's ham-fisted in communities especially that that project up in Harlem where it's just like jammed into a community and it's completely out of place and you're seeing the results of that so I, I wanted to you know kind of reflect so we're not kind of being hypocritical like we're oh this guy's great this guy isn't there's a personality that kind of goes along with that and the work reflects that I think yeah nicely put I think that's a good point alright so I think we all have a lot of last minute packing and preparations before getting this AIA convention party started. Donna started early, I think. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I hear the ice cubes. Uh... <laughs> clink, clink, clink. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you guys tonight. And it's sunny and there's a pool at this hotel. So yeah, it's going to be awesome. Let us know when you get here. We will. All right. Well, thanks to everybody for listening. As always, reach out to us, connect at rconnect.com on Twitter, hashtag Arconnect Sessions. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to, uh, to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. And until next week, with some AIA coverage, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.